This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Unholy Trinity Podcast. Trinity B-Side, tackling the issues within football. Welcome to episode six of the Trinity B-Side. And we're delighted to say we've been back after a little bit of a, a hiatus um, after after speaking to uh, the founder of Kiss It Out going back a good few months ago now. But we're delighted to say that we, we've been joined by Everton writer for The Athletic. He, he's worked in his field for, for many, many years now for the Liverpool Echo, for the BBC. And that is that is Greg O'Keefe. Greg, how are you, mate? Hello, lads. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Um, been watching what you've been doing from afar. And yeah, been chatting to Leon and off for, what is it, a couple of years now, isn't it? So mm-hmm. we've, we've kept threatening to get to get on one day and I'm glad to uh, finally manage it. So hope you're well as well. Said we'd get you on a Bosman at some point, mate. We found <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think I think he accosted you, didn't he, in the uh, in the Gladys Street at one point. He, he mentioned to us. <laughs> uh, yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I must have been. When was that? Do you remember? Because it, it, it was a couple of years ago. That mate, wasn't it? There was a period when I was working. So after I left the BBC, before I started the Athletic, I wasn't uh, in sports journalism. I was working at one of the universities doing the the comms there. Uh, just fancied a break from journalism, actually. So I started going to match again, and um, my dad and brother have got season tickets, and I started going as a as a fan properly. And I think it would have been around about then. I think it was. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, I, I was loving that. <laughs> I miss I miss that. You know, the sort of like it's a small price to pay for obviously all the uh, benefits of doing what doing my profession. But yeah, I do miss chatting to people and and just putting names to faces and having a pint before the game and stuff like that, yeah. And we all miss that, don't we, at a minute? Well, well exactly, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we certainly do. But no, it's great to, to have you on and to give us a bit, a bit of time this afternoon. Um, to, and, and the title of, of, of the show um, is The, the Changing Face of, of Football Journalism. Um, and we spoke briefly before we, we started the call about, obviously, what we feel that that, that is and maybe what is has impacted over the years since you started your career in football journalism. But I'd like to sort of go back to, to the start of May and, and ask you, was it always your goal to be involved within football journalism? Was it was that, that always the career path that you wanted to take? It was, yeah. That was always something I wanted to do from um, junior school, you know, probably. Um, and then I would... So I, I'm from West Derby and I kind of lived around the corner from... Uh, Melwood and like not far from Belfield so I'd always be up and down to Belfield and there was a news agent on town road like two or three minutes away from mine and I, <laughs> I don't know why probably just a, a young nerd um, but I'd be in there all the time it's obviously don't forget this is pre um, I'm about to say it's not was it wasn't pre-internet but not everyone would have had internet access so my my only sort of like daily Everton updates were either Club Call, if you remember that, or or the Echo and the various editions of the Echo. So I'd be in there just burning the head out in the newsagent, trying to see if in between the, the sort of early edition, then the City edition, then the late and then the final, whether there'd been any change in injury updates or Everton signing somebody. I think I particularly did their head in around the summer transfer window because I'd be in there... Um, Either asking me when I could buy four echoes <laughs> or just going into I actually got a job in there, I think I did end up doing a paper round just so I could like keep up to date with the Everton information. So this was pre the golden days before Twitter. But um yeah, I used to like hang off every word that the likes of Dave Prentice and Phil McNulty and people like that would write about the blues really and um then I'd noticed when I'd I'd go and sit outside Belfield and try and go in or just try and get autographs. And I'd noticed journalists sometimes coming and going, 
just thought, yeah, that's that, that's that's for me. And I enjoyed writing anyway. That was one of the uh, the things that I was well, one of the few sort of academic things that I was all right at. So I, it just made sense. And um, so I structured like school and, and uni and stuff like that with that aim in mind. But it took a while. I mean, there wasn't really. I, I studied journalism at uni, so I, you couldn't. I think there's only one place that specialised in sports journalism in Preston. I went to Sheffield and as a result of that, I was a news reporter for a while, actually, on various places at the Echo mainly. Covered like um, everything from politics to crime to features. And then it was only like 2009 when Dominic King, who now writes for The Mail, had been the Everton reporter. And he moved roles within the Echo and it was a vacancy. And I. I basically took over as Everton writer then in 2009. So if you think I started as a journalist after the union in 2002, so I had to like bide my time. But it, in, in many ways, I was so fortunate because that was the only job I wanted in sports journalism anyway at that time. And a lot of people would have to start covering like maybe Marine or Tranmere. I went straight in to covering Everton, which was um, a dream job, definitely. But it was also a massive eye-opener and a challenge going from being a, an interested fan within the industry to doing it as a as your, as your day-to-day, yeah. That's brilliant, that, because I, so I, when I look back at my time at school and that, went to uni as well, very, very, you had a clear focus, like, that, this is what I love, this is what I want to be, and, you know, you followed it. So many people, don't they, going through school very rarely have that focus, you know, because so many of us get to our A-levels or anything, like thinking, right, what am I going to do? What am I even going to do at uni and that? You you were kind of almost an exception to the rule there by the sound of it, isn't it? You clearly loved journalism and that's where you wanted to be and you went after it and got it. So yeah. I was fortunate, you know, because that's I often think that like my, my couple of my best mates didn't uh, have that sort of direction or what or clear vision of what they wanted to do. And I know one of them especially said it was like it used to really give him anxiety because he'd get to times of A-levels and then what you need to go to. And you just sort of felt untethered because he was just like, I don't know what to do with my life. Um, so I was fortunate, really, that I did, mm. you know, I did have that, yeah. Um, I'm pleased I had that because you, know, you, you can, you know what to do then. You, at least it might not be easy. It's a competitive industry. It's difficult to get into, but at least you know, look, this is what I'm good at or, or I think I'd be good at and this is what I'm going to target. So, yeah. I think it's a good lesson, though, isn't it, for, for those who, who are listening, um, who, who are interested in this this side of things, you know, football journalism and, and writing and uh, and things like that. In terms of if you've got the drive, determination, and direction, then then these these kind of things these kind of things are possible. Uh, like you say, it's a difficult industry to get into. I'm, I'm sure it, it, it really really is. And but you know, people people can strive to to, to be involved and look. Obviously, where where you are now. Uh, working for for the athletic, uh, but, but 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 what was it like when, when you when you got told you had the job at the Echo as the yeah. uh, for for your for your boyhood club? How did that feel? And you say you say it was eye opening. How was it eye opening for you? Well, I mean, it, it was it was fantastic. You know, a sense of um, almost overwhelmed at first because it was although I'd worked the Echo for a good while, so that. You know the the actual culture of the organisation and the people I was working with weren't anything new. That role was was something that it was it was you know like I could say it was my at that point absolute ambition. So it was brilliant. It was overwhelming, and then without much time to think about it, I started on the Monday, and I think the Wednesday I was down in my first game was Hull away, um, and we got beat three two. Uh, I think we were 3-0 down at half-time. And it was then that I started to learn what it really, what the job really entailed. Because sport, sports desks in, in newspapers are often quite like a bit of a closed shop. Like every, everyone's sound and, you know, um, friendly, but they're sort of quite esoteric. They work, you know, they probably, rightly or wrongly, think, look, we, we, we're the people that matter at this paper. We sell the newspapers or, you know, provide the content for online. But we'll, we'll talk about that change. But uh, they don't really offer up their secrets too readily, so I didn't really know what to expect. And it was a whole different world in terms of the journalistic practices and 
the way I was used to operating were just turned on its head. So I'll give you an example. When you're reporting on um, council or news uh, to um, organisations that are accountable and need a reciprocal relationship with, well, actually they are accountable to the public. So as much as they can be difficult, the police or Liverpool Council or whatever it is, United Utilities, if there's a story and you need to go to them and you know something, you've got automatic leverage because they need to have a degree of accountability and openness. And they need to, they don't always, but more often than not, they need to cooperate and give you answers and uh, work with you. Football isn't like that. Um, clubs are like, I, I mean, we all right to swear and just talk normally on this, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, clubs, yeah, yeah. Clubs don't give a fuck. They're just like they see it as they hold all the cards. So although there was a feeling that the Echo and the football clubs on their side always had a closer relationship than maybe other media did, I think that was very much changing before I started. To be fair, and then during the period when I started, whereas clubs would just be like, um, we've got commitments across the board from broadcasters, global partners. And the echo is just another cog in the machine. And often the, the relationship would be, um, <laughs> we'll work with you, but on our terms and when it's something that we want to discuss. And if it isn't, um, yeah, good, good luck trying to get an answer. Or, um, but it, has, it wasn't always like that. And what I took a while to get my head around is that I was, I was working in an organisation where the culture had been um, – the absolute glory days of the 80s and 90s where if you were the Everton or Liverpool writer for the Echo, you'd go to Belfield, like I said earlier, like I could see people doing it, or you'd go to Melwood, you'd walk in, you'd sit down with the players maybe after, you know, when they're having a lunch, you might be able to go and have 20 minutes and a cup of tea with the manager in his office. Howard Kendall would phone Dave Prentice with team news and, oh, I've got a little story for you here, lad, because he'd want to use the Echo to get one up on Liverpool and he'd give him a transfer. And there was still a little bit of, a, of an expectation that you'd have a degree of that sort of um, um, work and practice. And it just, it, it was becoming increasingly rare. Like David Moyes was the manager. And although he's, as I've come to realise as you move on in your career, not one of the worst in terms of the media, he was also not one of the best. So getting any sort of like um, amenable relationship with him was difficult. And it's doubly difficult when the club are increasingly moving away from that sort of open access at the time. Um, so, and it's it's been on a, a curve. So it was still better back in two thousand and nine. But if you look at now, it's completely changed. But um, you know, we we'll get to that. But they were all different things that made it quite challenging. And then it's just like little things, like you know, you've gone from, like I say, I was. Of, of a weekend when I wasn't working at the Echo as a reporter, I'd be going to match. So you go from being, it's quite surreal actually, from being in that part of your club's life to so all of a sudden having a foot in the club, which is brilliant. But you're also like the scales fall off to a degree because you stop appreciating it as a fan as much and you need to report on it and have difficult conversations with people in the club who you respect or maybe were even like people that you had looked up to. Uh, and then you're in a situation where it's all quite. It can get quite fraught because the, the media relationship with the with the club. So it was a massive learning curve. Probably one of the biggest professional learning curves I've ever had so far in my career. Anyway, was that transition? I find that fascinating when you're saying that. Then because the thought of like someone in your profession there sitting down with like Howard Kendall and having a brew or something like that and having a chat, you just think like. That would just never happen, would it? Now, it just absolutely never happen. And obviously, like Moyes, obviously, I was about to say you were there when Moyes was was obviously uh, at Everton and you know doing, let's be fair, a half decent job with the resources he had. Yeah. But he was fa- he was famously known for being very closed anyway, isn't he? Particularly around transfers, it was all secretive. I think I remember reading somewhere, didn't he have his own room that only certain people are allowed into because he had a whiteboard in there with all the targets and you know stats and everything. Um, what was David like? I mean, obviously, you would have got to, to speak to him quite a bit. Was he was he was he famously frosty, like a frosty Scott, or was he? Did you build a bit of a relationship with him? Or I'd, I mean, initially he was he, he was frosty. Um, yeah, he was he was difficult. To be honest, 
he was um, very brusque and just civil um, yeah. at best. And he was somewhat, he, he was so intense, and that, and that famous intensity and singularity that made him such a good manager. It wasn't that wasn't an act that was that was him. So he, but he would really that would be across his relationships with the media. So it was hard. It was you know it was hard work trying to build a relationship with him. But it did come through um, time served and through he'd learned to trust you a little bit. Um, and I got ended up in a position where I think it was pretty decent with him. You know, you, you could have a, there was a, a degree of trust there. Um, he could lose his temper. He could be quite volatile. He could take things badly, which weren't intended badly, or he could um, fall out with the echo. And obviously I would then bear the brunt of that for things that might not have been even in my gift to control. He, he once banned me for a week during the club tour of Australia when I'd been the only media who'd been sent to cover Everton in Australia. With the only independent media that have been sent out there at great cost to the Echo. <laughs> so Everton, you know, in 2010, to be fair, weren't, you know, they weren't getting loads of coverage for that tour, but I was there. And uh, he banned me in the first week for a headline that someone else had written in back on in the Echo. And I tried to remember having this discussion with him in the lobby of a hotel in Sydney. And he said, well, what's this? You know, I told, it, it was it was over Mikel Arteta. So basically, very long story short, it was when Arteta had first started um, stalling on a new contract. And if you remember the time, he was linked yeah. with Arsenal even then. And understandably, Moyes didn't want to lose him and uh, was very prickly about it. And that summer, it had become on the agenda. So there was a press conference. Uh, I think some of the nationals back home had written, had written about the link to the Arsenal. And we were told before the press conference, this was in the hotel. In, no, it wasn't. It was in the... The uh, the I think it's called the ANZ Stadium now in Sydney, um, mm-hmm. and we were told basically don't ask about Mikel Arteta. That they're off limits. Questions like that. So okay, fair enough. Rang rang back to my desk, sent over the article. Uh, we did the press conference, sent it something like you know Moyes looking forward to seeing you, you know young players step up during tour, whatever it was. And um, my sub editor asked the question, you know, as, as he should do in his job. Well, what, what about Arteta? Did, did you not ask about Arteta? We weren't able to. It was off limits. Right, okay. Next, whatever time difference it was, the Echo had obviously come out at home and there was a headline about your blah, blah, blah. And then the sub-headline was, but questions about Arteta's future off limits. And then there was just a throwaway line near the bottom. And um, Moise yeah. saw his arse. Saw his arse over this. And I was trying to say to him, but I didn't ask you about him and we haven't speculated about it. I didn't want anything about Mikel in this. You know, and it, it, this is how silly it would get. And it's like, well, look, people want to know. It's being reported on elsewhere. And the very least that we could do as the local paper is indicate to readers that we're aware it's a talking point, but we we were unable to ask. Uh, get out. Get, you know, you, you're not welcome. You're not welcome near the, the squad until, uh, you know. And at one point, I, I thought he was just going to say I was banned for three weeks while we are out there on tour. But he, he relented after yeah. he, he relented after a week. But um, yeah, he could be quite he could be quite volatile with the media. To be honest, he liked to throw his weight around a little bit. But he had that control at the club. He was um, back then, as you remember, obviously before director of football days, and the board wasn't what it is now. And David, with obviously with the chairman as well, pretty much ran the show. Um, and so that was everything from media policy or access and you know if David said it went so yeah there I was banned but he got he wasn't always he wasn't always like that he, occasionally he could be he could be quite amiable he could have a laugh and a joke um, and there was even a, you know he, he would even have time sometimes to uh, let you in his office and have a have a decent chat but um, yeah that was few and far between <laughs> to be fair it's crazy, it's crazy, isn't it? Because you know, Moyes, we probably remember Moyes more than any any manager, to be honest. I mean, being born in, in the eighties, the, the two of us, um, you remember obviously nineties, of course, when when the cup book that that Moyes era really sticks out for for us, probably because of the time he was at the club. 
And you know, you, you have your own sort of impression of, of David Moyes, and, and you, you know, it was always you always thought you, you ran you ran a tight ship. But listening to obviously the the story, it it it, it sort of uh, it takes you back to those days. And you know, would would you, would you say um, those days were better from a journalism point of view for, for football compared to how it is now? Um, and well, I would say that although I wasn't there to witness them firsthand, I would certainly say Preno and, and the days before, you know, the, the early 90s, 80s, must have been an absolute golden era. Must have made it so sorry, easy to Sorry, I, that's my fault. I, I meant, sorry, the David Moyes era Yeah. now. So when you first sort of started out to where we uh, are No, it's now. all right. No, yeah, I knew, I did actually, no, that was fine. I knew what you meant. Um, yeah, probably even then was, despite, like I said, it could be fractious, but there was still a degree of access. And even then as well, more importantly, there was still a degree of access to players you were still able to build individual relationships with players to um, get to know them uh, and potentially, you know, contact them on a, a trust and private basis away from uh, the club sanctioned and organised and observed interviews. But as the as media became more and more uh, digital and rolling news and Twitter became, you know, uh, became prevalent. And the club decided to clubs, sorry, not just Everton by any means. Clubs decided to monetize their uh, assets in terms of knowing that their con their in players became a channel of content. So they set up their own websites, their own TV channels, their own magazine, their own podcasts. Then they cracked down on that access and eroded it. So I would say that's a very long-winded answer to say, yeah, it was for me. That was probably as good as it got back then in terms of access. I was about to say, because you look at Contrast Moyes, I don't know whether you were there then when Roberto was there. I'd imagine Roberto was the type of guy that he is. He had, well, certainly from the outside looking in, seemed to have the time of day for anyone. And I think he was quite famously known for essentially being, you know, very friendly with journalists, wasn't he? He was quite happy to and quite open to talk about um, Everton. Obviously, sadly for him, it all fell apart because I think in the end, people tended to see through him a little bit. Um as a fella, he came across as just a thoroughly decent guy that was willing to have a conversation. Is that how it was? Were you there then when Roberto was there or you, had you moved on at that point? No, no. I was actually thinking about Roberto when you when you were saying, like, you know, was that the best point? I would say you, you're absolutely mm. spot on, Lee, to be fair. That period, probably the first season, um, professionally. And then obviously when I look back with my Evertonian kind of glass on as well, you know, in terms of recent history as a blue was 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 just tremendous and yeah you're spot on Roberto was a different completely different uh, operator to Moyes and how he dealt with the media um, and I still even though I would I would say this wouldn't I I still believe Roberto had it right in the sense of use the media like he wasn't he was he, he was not stupid in any way obviously he would only he would do it would be on his terms to an extent but he would be open he would be giving of his time he would explain things and give context off the record. And he was just trying to, maybe it was because he was a younger manager than David, although I'm not sure if he would have been that young. Well, I suppose David was, you know, was older and more experienced But when I started. But um, Roberto maybe felt that he needed local media on side um, and he valued local media. And that first season, was, he was brilliant. Very, very giving of his time. There was a director of communications there at the time, Alan Myers, who obviously had done my job, uh, albeit maybe not at the Echo, but in broadcast terms, um, and worked for Sky and then gone back to Everton. And Alan's like a, like a first-class fella anyway, like, you know, one of the best uh, men and professionals I've worked with. And so he was brilliant, and I think he was a massive force for good for the club. In tandem with Roberto, who was enjoying the, the upward curve, so that openness and that access all came with a smile. And as you say, eventually fans decided, no, not decided, understand began to see through some of the sound bites. But for a good year, it was a happy medium, wasn't it? Um, mm-hmm. And I think everybody, mm-hmm. the relationship was working for everybody. You just needed a defensive coach, you'd have been all right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, sadly. And then in the end, it was quite, I think Roberto became, towards the end of it, quite embittered and, and decided that the media had turned on him and, and um, sort of blamed media a little bit, I think, for the fans' reaction when it 
I would argue that it was more his, you know, if I could have got in front of him, I would just try and explain to him. And I felt at the time, um, this, this is after Alan had moved on, I felt it, it was other people should have explained to him that he just needed to regulate how he spoke after defeats and and just change some, sometimes some of the things he was saying because it was making it worse. If you remember some of the things he used to say, he didn't mean it, but it would be almost provocatory. Like he'd come out after defeats and he'd be singing and because he was positivity was his absolute sacrosanct to him. That was how you would approach anything. But sometimes that doesn't uh, feed into an Evertonian or a football fans' minds mindset when you've been beaten. You don't care how many passes you completed, or you don't care that uh, Aruna Kone did this, that, or the other. It, it really started to grate, didn't it? And he lost. I think he lost a lot of goodwill towards the end. Um, and I think he could have been better advised in that regard, but there you go. Everything was phenomenal, wasn't it? It was. And whether he would have listened to any advice is another matter altogether. That's the way he is. Is, is it, I mean, you mentioned, obviously, uh, Roberto potentially blame the media for how, how things might have ended. Is, is, is it difficult when you're, when you're reporting on you know, managers, players, you know, who you may have a relationship with, who you're fairly friendly with? Is it difficult when they're going through a rough patch or when you, you, you maybe feel that you need to call them out? Is that, is that a hard thing to do? Very difficult. Really, really difficult, yeah. The problem is, well, the good thing is as well, it keeps you honest because people can see straight through it when you, you've got to take the rough with the smooth. And if you're someone who admires a player and then has a relationship with the player, you're naturally going to write a lot of positive things about them because you you know, you know value them. You can see what they, what they do to the team. However, as happens to almost any player, if their form dips or if their form goes off a cliff or something bad happens, you, you've got to be your first. Your first loyalty has almost got to be to the readers, I think, and to people who, for me back then as well, people who buy the Echo wanting to get a tr- you know coverage they can trust from essentially someone who's one of them. And if you then start trying to say black's white, say such and such had a brilliant game when it, he clearly didn't, you, you're doing a disservice to the readers, I think. And it's difficult to, therefore, to uh, to be critical, but you've got to be. And there's ways and means of doing it. You know, I don't think it's ever appropriate to slag off a player. Um, well, very rarely, anyway. You know, most times, you know, players don't deliberately have a bad game. Um, there's, a, you know, 101 things that might be happening behind the scenes that might inform a poor performance or a dip in form, and that's obviously our job to try and you know, unearth that as well. But I think. You've got to be allowed to be honest. And the best relationships with players and managers have got a balance. Like they'll accept some criticism um, or they just won't care. A lot of them just don't read it anyway, which is fine. I don't blame them, to be honest. Um, but they won't get too overly prickly. They'll understand that it got its part. It goes, it, it's, it's, you know, sort of part and parcel of the job that you do. You're there to report accurately and objectively but then also because of the way you're also there to comment aren't you you're also there to give your opinion which is difficult but everyone's opinions differently and it's I, it would just be drilled home to me with the ratings i hated doing ratings but the echo used you used to have to give especially back then when you did everything so i used to have to like every game you do your match report you speak to the manager you speak to a player in the tunnel and then you'd have to go and give ratings and some players don't know why, but they would actually read the ratings and they would very angrily disagree with it. And, you know, it would, you'd hear back. They never, you'd never hear back if you gave someone a nine or eight or a nine. But if you, if you believe that they've been really bad and you gave, say, a four or a three, you'd, you'd often hear back from some channel, whether it was the agents or the player themselves. Um, so there you go. I mean, it, I always laugh because even now some, some places have to do it. And you'll probably, I don't know if you've ever seen it yourselves, you'll see the team's got hammered and you might see and most of them have got like a fives or sixes and you'll go, but they were shite. Like, oh, but <laughs> spare a thought for like the journalist who's... And as well, you're thinking like, when you when you do have to see them regularly, you, there's a little part of you that feels a bit of imposter syndrome because you know that you're, you're not a professional footballer. So who are you really? I've not got any coaching badges. 
Um, yeah. I was a barely functional Sunday league footballer, so <laughs> I could, you know, who am I to sit and judge a professional footballer at the pinnacle of the career? Um, but that's part, it, it's just an opinion and it's just subjective. And every fan would do the same, you know, you, you all come away from the match, don't you, saying such and such had a good game, but I thought he was he was poor. And you'll argue with your brother, your dad, your mate. So it was an extension of that, but they caused murder. And they still do. Still do. <laughs> uh, it's funny. It's funny. It's, uh, it's, you, you mentioned that there about, obviously, uh, other journalists giving, giving ratings to players. And yeah, you, you don't really at the time think about how probably difficult it, it actually is to, to do it. You know, um, your first thought is protecting your players, you know, as a fan. Um, so I, I, I certainly... Uh, I certainly understand that, but obviously you work with the Echo as as the the uh, Everton correspondent, Everton reporter. How did it change when you moved to the BBC? Um, did, did were you solely working then on Everton, or, or did you expand expand your guys and so to speak within within football then? So yeah, good question. I mean, to, just quickly to finish off on the Echo. So it was an interesting time, about 2015-16. The Echo turned the publishing strategy around like most of the local papers did to be digital first so um the website came to the prominence there was various apps that uh, came and went until the, the app that is there now and the priority for news and breaking news would be on the website and social media was becoming increasingly prevalent you know uh, editing the facebook page the twitter account and um so on and so forth so that was an interesting change and it, it it really totally transformed journalism, sports journalism for me. The the shift towards online and whether it whether it was as the Echo was, and most regional, well, all regional media are based on ad, ad revenue. So basically, um, a model whereby you need adverts on your pages and you need to uh, sustain the existence of your news organisation by uh, ad revenue and clicks. So that changed the way you present content and stories, the way you might headline it um, for the better and for the worse. So by 2017, I, I, I had an opportunity to go to BBC and I did. And it was, again, really different again. Uh, I wasn't just covering Everton. I was covering all football um, and other sports as well, which was an eye-opener. I mean, I do love other sports, but... Um, always been more as well always been completely as a fan so I didn't have any I went from just covering football to all of a sudden being told you're doing a live feed on the Tour de France and, and being like what the fuck I didn't <laughs> what I knew about cycling you could probably write on the back of a stamp so you'd spend like the night before furiously researching uh, cycling or F1 again straight over my head so that was a challenge, uh, um, and some parts of that were, were great, other parts not not so much. Especially, I became I realised how lucky I was, unfortunate I was to have covered the sport and a club that you know I knew I knew well and loved, uh, and how much more of a challenge it is, and more of a job it feels to cover sports that you haven't really got that much interest in. Um, but yeah, the BBC was a different way of operating the game, and I managed to do some editing games, and you know enjoyed that. And, um, so yeah, so I spent. About 18 months working out of Salford, got to cover the World Cup, um, albeit obviously I was in Salford, but yeah, covering part of the team that covered the World Cup uh, and it was really interesting. Yeah, it was a very big change from the Echo in, in every way, I suppose, because it's more of a national, well, it is a national media outlet um, and different ways of working too. It's interesting there actually because it was around that time you said where where print was becoming less and less prevalent, wasn't it? Yeah, and uh, and obviously it's still moving that way now. And I think Twitter was a big thing with that. Obviously, Twitter really took took off in the states first, didn't it? And it came over here, and then yeah, it is interesting because I, I I was a massive Everton fan, grew up in 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 North Wales, and we used to get the Daily Post over there. So oh, yeah. I was like you, I, I was like a little nerd myself. I can wait for the, my granddad used to get the paper. He yeah. was um he was an Everton fan really he's not with us now sadly but he worked for Liverpool he was he was really good mates with Steve Fireway okay he worked, he worked on the YTS at Melwood but I used to always go with him in my Everton kit and stuff like that but I I would be the Daily Post for me I was like a little, I couldn't wait to read all the rumors yeah. all it was always around transfers and uh, even back then you guys will probably remember as well do you remember Teletext as well like four yeah. one stuff like that. you'd be all over Teletext looking for rumors yeah. and stuff like that so. 
progression from there, like all the way through to where we are now, it's, it's well, it's the digital age, isn't it? It's crazy how quickly it's changed. It's almost like you think from music, from like the Walkman to the, you know, to the CD player, to the mini disc, to the iPod, to, you know, it's the same in, it's the same in, in media, isn't it? And, 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 and papers and things like that. Now everything's just become digitalized, really, isn't it? Um, it has, yeah, and it's funny you mentioned yeah. transfer. You mentioned transfers there, and that's like probably a good example of how Twitter's transformed things. Because whilst Twitter's been, in in some ways, in, in journalism, a source for good in the, the the emergence of like citizen journalism, and you know anyone who's got a Twitter account or a smartphone can be a reporter per se, um, or can report information. It also presented a massive challenge for us. Because obviously you've got the whole stratosphere of um, not not fan journalism, which I don't have an issue with, but deliberately misleading Twitter accounts who just pump out rumor after rumor after rumor, hoping to snare a betting company. To hope, sorry, hoping to accrue enough followers and then snare a betting company who will go and sponsor their Twitter account. So uh, for every ten tweets, they might pump out a link to a betting company. And then they'll get some monetized their uh, bullshit uh, Twitter account. The difficulty is when that becomes such a such a part of the landscape. A lot of people on Twitter, and I'm not having, a, I'm not criticizing the people, but they believe these rumors, and then they're throwing them at journalists and going, "You haven't got a fucking clue because look, this is happening." And you're going, yeah. well, "It's not," or or you're going, "What is it? What?" And then you're ringing people and you're wasting. Oh no! It, it was a rumor because that rumor might start in some bot, and then it will go through a fan, a fan site. Then it might get picked up by the Daily Mail online, just an example. But it'll be couched as so you know rumors progress, and then it might end up getting back pushed in front of you as people are saying, "Everton are signing someone here," and you say, "Well, who's saying it?" Daily Mail online. All right, okay, it's not Daily Mail Online. Who is it? All right, right, it's not Toffee Web. Oh, right, okay, it's some kid in his bedroom <laughs> who's been playing football manager. And that sounds, if it sounds like I'm being dismissive of like I'm not because a lot and sometimes they, it's right. Sometimes the, the people do just know things and and they might feel more comfortable putting it on Twitter. There are some anonymous accounts that get stuff right, but more often than not, in my experience, it's um, it's it's mischievous links or half truths, and it just makes reporting on a club in a way that you can be trusted harder. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, as we said at the top of the, the this episode as well, it also has you have a very open dialogue with um, people who read your content for better or worse as well. Yeah, that's where that's where all the Raquel May rumours would have come from then. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I mean Raquel May, yeah. Yeah. What a player! What a player! Class. What a player indeed! Yeah. yeah. It's funny though that you mentioned obviously transfer rumors as as the example on on Twitter and uh, obviously anyone can start a transfer rumor and anyone can sort of build an account and and, and get a following and and so on and and like you say we we all get carried away ourselves reading Twitter. I mean I know on deadline day I'm constantly just refreshing refreshing. I know I know sort of who who to trust and who not to trust. You know, but. As as a journalist, and you, you mentioned there about people say, you know, you don't know don't know a thing. So and so saying this, Evan, or for so and so, you said nothing about it. Do you, we mentioned about about social media and Twitter specifically? You know, it can be a real source for good. Uh, it's certainly obviously the way that that a lot of um, reporting has gone over over recent years. But you personally, do you ever do you ever suffer at the hands of those fans in terms from a from a trolling aspect? You get a lot of a lot of shit off people sometimes. And if you do, how do you deal with that? I would say I have done definitely more more in the past um, when I worked at the Echo, where the there was a perception in some quarters that you couldn't do right for doing wrong at the Echo. Um, you were either in the club's back pocket, or you were out to get the club. You were either too positive or you were too negative. Uh, it was either the Red Echo or it was. You know, like I say, you were in the club's back pocket and all you wanted to do was do uh, positive pieces about the club. And they've become quite toxic sometimes to be plugged into that all the time as like the, the sort of public um, 
representative of the Echo in, in, in the Everton sphere. Um, and so then it would be it would be quite difficult at times because you get I mean you've got to be thick skinned in in any profession, haven't you? But when you I think when you're in a work that involves social media, you have to be a little bit more sensible and thick skinned. And then when you're in a profession where you're asked to be um to to kind of what's the word? So not only to, to have a social media presence, but actually to engage on, on Twitter as yourself with your name. Mm-hmm. Um, then it's another challenge even then. And I think like, so I probably didn't, hand, I probably would have sometimes by my own omission, not handle it brilliantly. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd bite a comment or I'd tell people to fuck off or I'd lose my temper or I'd sulk a little bit. Um, but generally speaking, I think, there's more sound uh, and, and and decent people on Twitter than even there are unpleasant people. Uh, unfortunately, the, the the ones who are unpleasant, who want to troll, who want to say really quite unbelievably in some cases spiteful things, they do tend to shout the loudest off, more often than not. Um, so I think you just need to, and actually, I'm fortunate to not have to deal with that that much anymore for whatever reason, but. If I could say back then, I would have just said to me, I would have advised myself just not to uh, not to get involved in conversations with people because you, you can't really win. So people are entitled to have. And I always have, if someone comes to me and says, you know, I disagree with that and this is why, or asks a genuine question respectfully, I'll, tr- I'll always try and answer back and just say, well, almost like you're grateful for that because yourself, you know, Fair enough. Nice one for uh, putting it across in such a, a decent civil manner. And I'll, I'll be inclined to have a decent conversation and say, like, look, this is why I think this, or I can't re- report why, but this is actually the case. But then if some people you can't win, so the, my my advice would be, or my feeling was it's just not worth engaging with them. And, like, you just mute them or, or block them. And um, it's just a, a lot of the time they're people who would never – in person would would behave that way or speak to you that way so the they be, just became increasingly unimportant but yeah it's quite an eye opener at first when you get you know you're getting called all sorts for something quite innocuous well that therein lies the pros and cons of, of twitter isn't it in general it's great I think so, in some yeah. ways it's great in some ways but even even outside of sport in society isn't it it, it, it polarizes people and we've seen that in the last 12 months especially with everything going on with the pandemic you know and Suddenly, there's a big, there's, you know, the likes of the the left and the right getting, you know, the far left and right getting more yeah. vocal. And um, for me, the sooner they, the sooner they actually ID people before you even open a Twitter account, and rather than having someone who can open twenty and just start dishing out, like you said, loads of abuse without any sort of recourse, the better, really, because I think that'll then rein it in. And you know, um, and it's one of we've talked about it briefly on the pod before. One of my biggest bugbears if we have a bad game. When people act players and then really lay into players and start like you know you were absolutely you know shite today and all that you know and at the end of the day the players are players they live a great lifestyle they live in the dream in some ways but they're also human beings you know what I mean you know you've seen Bernard come out recently talking about mental health problems obviously taking some some things on board online Gomez famously before he came to us even was like that now he seems to be the subject in some fan quarters of obviously you know. Suddenly, we've signed this player because he, he was decent before his injury. Now he's crap. You know, there's always seen. I just, you know, I felt as a fan base, in some ways, rightly or wrongly, we, we've got on players' backs like Barkley and Davis, and and it's, it's such a shame. But then Twitter's almost kind of like, if you're, if I was a player and I put myself in their shoes, I'd probably just be off social media. Could be reading everything and be thinking like, Jesus, this is a nightmare. This. You know I just mean? wouldn't uh, use it. Absolutely agree with yeah, you. Like, I yeah, just wouldn't yeah. use it. I wouldn't engage. And I think players, as a rule, don't like to. A lot of them, yeah. if they have got social media presence, it'll be managed by someone who works for them and they'll have as little to do with it as possible. And then there's yeah, some players yeah, who, yeah. who do see a value in it and do use it, but most don't. And yeah, I don't blame them. I just don't understand what goes through the psyche of, some, of an adult, particularly, who wants to start a Twitter account and then just go on and start trolling. I mean yeah. that's a whole different. Yeah. That's that's a actual psychological uh, someone who's a bit disturbed, in my opinion. Like you, you feel that that you know embittered and that you know part out of some normal life. That that's how you get your kicks. But 
Yeah, you're right, though. I mean, I'm not saying that to people who are overly critical. I like that. Sometimes people are just angry. And mm. you are angry when your team loses. And, and you know, whereas they used to just go to the, the pub and vent about it, especially in lockdown, maybe they turn to Twitter. But ironically, I know some players, younger players, without the fans there in Twitter, I've heard examples of young players who have crept back into checking social media after games to see if... Cause players are human and they, they sometimes might mm. want to have that you know that sort of like affirmation or not and um, I think it can be yeah it can be quite insidious can't it it's fair, I think it's all it's it's just it's, for me it's just being balanced and respectful so if you go on Twitter and say disappointed with Everton today I really expected more from my, I'm not saying but you know I thought Gomez had a poor game expected more fair enough and actually I'd agree on a lot of occasions this season I, I expect more from Gomez and but if you go on and go, you know, absolutely fucking shite. Um yeah. I can't believe he's leeching us of X amount. He's finished, he's awful, he's cheating a living. And wh- where's the balance in that? You know, this is obviously someone who's obviously a good guy, isn't he? You know, he's yeah. thrown himself into Everton the community. As you rightly said, he's spoken openly about his own mental health problems in the past when he was at Barcelona. No one goes out and thinks I'm gonna have a poor game today. So I don't understand it, but I agree with you. It's, uh, it's not good, like. Certainly a fine line and, and knowing, one, when to stop, but two, how to, to get your points across correctly and, and in, a, in a respectful manner. And it's, it's one of my biggest bugbears, to be honest with you. It's, it, I mean, Lee mentioned there about when people are plays after games or during a game or whatever. Yeah. It might be. yeah. And it's, it's, the big, it's the biggest pet hate of mine because we're, we're, we're lucky to have this kind of access in a way as fans, you know, some some players do choose to converse. Some players do have a bit of a laugh sometimes. I mean, Richardson's quite quite vocal and quite funny, and he, he likes likes a bit of attention, doesn't he? And likes to you know have a laugh with fans. But we're lucky in that sense that that, that medium is available. But some people take it too far and and, and cross the line. It's a huge it's a huge bugbear of mine, that's for sure. Um, but ju- just to just to sort of round us off, if we, if we can, Greg. Obviously, now you're working for the Athletic. Um, and I remember when, when the Athletic really first launched over here, and it's yourself and, and Paddy Boyland who, who cover who cover everything. Um, how how did how did that come about, and and, and how's it going for you now? Because me personally, I, I think it's probably become one of the the most the most trustworthy reporting outlets, in my opinion. I think when, when an Athletic article comes out, you want to read it. Because I think I think you trust what it says. That that's just my opinion, and obviously I'll come to Lee in a second. But how did that job come about? And and as I say, how, how do you think that it's it's going to it's going to go in the future? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for saying you know for saying nice things about the athletic, and I that's what we're working towards is is obviously creating a sense that what the amount of freedom we've got in terms of the model that the, the athletic is allows us to. Um, take longer or maybe more time to research, to cultivate contacts and to present a bit more of a nuanced, informed view of the club. Um, and that's what we want to do. But uh, so I think I mentioned earlier, I don't know if before we started recording, but I was working in one of the unis um, and I was not in not working at that point back in sports journalism after I'd left the BBC. Um, and... The athletic, I'd heard the athletic were launching, and I was just, I was curious because I, you know, I sort of like, I knew of them in America and I'd seen, I follow boxing and, and UFC to a degree. So I'd seen that they were making, making waves and over there and that. Um, and a friend of mine, uh, James, who covers Liverpool, had uh, phoned me one day and said, Oh, I'm leaving the Echo. So I'm like, wow, okay, what, what's going on? He said, I'm going to work for the athletic. And that's when I really became aware of it. And, um, it was only a couple of weeks later, uh, I got a call from one of the editors in America and he was talking about Everton. And um, I thought we were just having a conversation about the landscape and he was he was going to ask me, you know, who I might recommend to cover Everton. But he said, no, yeah, we'd like you to cover Everton. Um, so I just, so I had a decision to make really, obviously enjoying the job I was doing, working at Liverpool Hope Uni in a different field, not in sports journalism. Um, first time I've not worked in journalism in my career, but at the same token, it's something that's your passion, and for a new organisation like they are, 
thought I'll probably regret it if I don't if I don't give this a try. Really, and I'm really pleased I did because what they said it was going to be when we started. I feel it's on route to it. It has become and it's on route to becoming better. And it's very very different in the sense. Obviously, it's subscription and like it's it's that's a marmite concept for some people, and I get it. I I, I understand. Everyone's squeezed these days. You've got your Netflix, you've got your Spotify, your Apple Music, and it feels like everyone wants 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 you 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 lose change all the time. Everything's always getting monetized, and a lot of people bridle. And I would have I I agree. You know how, how much? Oh, I'll read something else. But thinking in the world in, in where we live, you either have that or you have a model where you're going to click on a website and you'll have 15 videos popping up. You'll have content which might be produced by the best journalists in the world, but it's also got to rely on clicks. And that changes sometimes the way that's, that can be produced and the pressures that people who, who produce it are under. And Athletic, what drew me to it was that it was none of that. Yeah, it's going to be a subscription base. And yet that'll take a while for people to decide if it's for them because it's new and pretty new in the UK. At the time, the Telegraph hadn't even gone behind a paywall. So it didn't really happen with journalism. And the gamble was if people are going to decide to pay for journalism or not. So it made me think, oh, well, is this going to happen? But people would have probably thought they wouldn't pay for other forms of entertainment or, you know, things that they value before Netflix. I'm not comparing um, journalism to, to Netflix, but it's all part of it. You know, I personally, I, I'll... Pay for you know if the Guardian, for example, went behind a paywall, I'd probably pay it because I value I I, I write, like to read the culture and the political journalism, um, and I just I like some of the writers there. I love Marina Hyde's columns, and it'll be one of my go to. So if they all of a sudden went, we're going behind a paywall, I would probably for me justify that because it's something that I enjoy, so I pay for it. So yeah, it's um, it's going really well. Um, I think the pricing of it is changing and, and and people they're aware that especially during the pandemic people are like you know strapped for cash a lot of people are a bit more strapped for cash and hopefully they, they're aware of that but i just think it, it produces in the long run journalism that, that a you're able to spend time uh, producing you're able to like i said earlier you, you're able to write in more depth a bit more nuance and try and produce something that's a little bit more um, thought-provoking and, and researched um, and ultimately I, I do think that's worth paying for like that's what would appeal to me now I completely understand it wouldn't be for everybody but um, I often find myself reading stuff about my, that my colleagues have written from different clubs and, and, and the lads who like that we've Danny Taylor works for us who was in like fundamental and breaking the, the Pennell story and the abuse of football scandal um, George Colkin who's yeah was at the Times before the Athletic, who's, for me, pound for pound, one of the best writers out there. I absolutely love his stuff. Um, it, You know, Ollie Kay was at the Times, the chief football writer at the Times, just brilliant, such a nice fella, generous with his time, and is breaks brilliant stories. So, um, yeah, I've really enjoyed it, and hopefully it'll continue to grow. But it's funny as well, just, just to finish off, what I've found is because... People are investing from the start, and the athletic they're saying, "Like I'm making a decision to part with whatever it is at the time when they've joined it for, let's say, four or five pound a month." They join it on those terms, and it's like you engage with them on on the app. So you write a piece, people put comments on the, and you'll chat to one another, and you'll answer questions, and it it's actually it's it's not a chore. It's pleasant because people aren't abusive they might disagree and i'm all for people disagreeing because everyone's entitled to have their opinions scrutinized or to have well what about this but i don't know why but people are just so much um so much sounder on it like <laughs> to choose to engage with you so long live that anyway that's sort of beneath the line discourse but um yeah so it'd be interesting to see how many other news outlets follow suit and start um pivoting to say well look we'll try and produce more considered journalism but it'll probably come behind a paywall we'll, we'll see well that goes back to your point Greg there of, of, about it's only a minority isn't it that tends to be the ones that are most negative and most vocal 
Yeah. So therefore, on, on, on the, I, I subscribe to Athletic. I have done pretty much since you guys started. And I read it all the time. You know, you, both of you do some great stuff. I read some other stuff on there and other sports that I'm interested in. I'm really interested in golf and things like that as well. There's some great stuff on golf in there. Um, but yeah, for me, I think it will probably go down that route eventually. I think most things will. Um, you're seeing it even now with podcasts, isn't it? Podcasts yeah. are going behind, you know, um, with, with things like that as well. Are people prepared to pay a couple of quid? At the end of the day, for me, you've just you've just said it yourself. If it's a couple of quid, but it's good content and I want to read it, I don't mind paying for it. I think that's what most people's attitude tends to be. Um, and if it you know if it does strip out all the ads and and like you just said, them you know some of the idiots you're actually having reasoned debate about football in this case, then great. You know that's what you want. That's what it's all there for, isn't it? You put stuff Absolutely. out, we comment it, and, and let's have a chat. Yeah, 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 completely. I totally agree. And like. I just kind of think when we were allowed to have nights out and we were allowed to go to the pub and stuff, you know, mm. f- for anything like Netflix or Spotify or The Athletic, but by the time you've got a round in, you've spent over a tenner, haven't you? That's, mm. you know, I, I, just, I don't think it's a lot to, uh, in the grand scheme of things. And I think, like, I agree with you, Lee, like, if you value it, then you just decide if it's worth it for you. And totally respect people who I've had a lot of people who said to me since I joined it oh shame I can't read this but I, I refuse to pay for journalism and also fair enough like I hope one day maybe you change your minds on that because you maybe see there's a value in it but completely understand people have like you know you have to pay for a lot these days don't you so um, we'll just see if those habits change like you say but increasingly podcasting music it's going that way isn't it and do you have any? Do you have any other subscriptions that, like, news-wise or? Um, no. When I when I, I subscribe to, I've had Spotify ever since it came out. Yeah. So I've always been to music. I think Spotify is great. I know other companies have tried to rival it, but they're still great, and I quite like what they're about as well. They've recently brought on Rogan, haven't they? So I listen to a lot of Joe Rogan stuff on podcast. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. Um, he's great. He's just just a great guy. To, you know, can talk about anything, um, and. I'm trying to think. Luminary, I subscribe to that. Yeah, uh, yeah, to some podcasts yeah, on that. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, they, they tend to be the ones that I, that I tend to do. And obviously, you know, the, the classic Sky and you know, and all that, uh, which obviously has always been there, and it's quite expensive for what it is, I think. But that's another story. But yeah, like I, <laughs> I agree with you on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about you, Mike? Do you? No, I've got I've got the athletic. Um, as I say, I just I just think that those the articles when when they come out, like you said, Greg, because you're you're taking the time and you're giving the time, you know, from from the company to to go away and research it. That's what shows in the article, and that's why that's what pulls you in. So obviously, like life is so fast nowadays, and it's all about breaking news and yeah. you know transfers and whatever it might be, and things which are just getting yeah. fired at you. It's nice to sit down and read something, like you say, where it shows that there's been a lot of work being put into it. Um, and it's an enjoyable read. And, you know, fellow Everton fans uh, that I speak to and friends of mine, they're pretty much on board with it because, you know, they get the same as I get from it. And at the end of the day, if you're going to spend, what, what, what are newspapers nowadays? I, I don't know, anywhere between sort of 70, 80 pence up to two quid, whatever it yeah. might be. You know, per, per day, if you're going to spend that, you might as well you know, spend money on a subscription for, for something like the athletic, which which you get you get enjoyment from, and that that's the way that that obviously it, things are going. But um, I think it's I think it's a really it's a really good thing, and and I think you know from looking from the outside and from where it started to where where it is now, you can see the growth in in, in such a short a short period of time. But it's credit, it's credit to both you and Paddy, I think, for for the work that you both that you both put in. To be yeah. honest, thank you. But I'd also do the thing that made me convinced me to join was it was interesting because when they spoke to me they said we've already got someone co- to cover Everton and I thought oh sound okay and I, I wondered what they I wonder if maybe they want to talk to me about podcasts or something and they said um, you know, young lad Paddy Boyland you know, really good writer um, at the time he was working down in London and they said but we want two people and I th- and they'd already said that like at Tottenham they only had one person at the time they only had one person with Chelsea Said, oh, okay, yeah, two people. And they said, yeah, because we, and this is the Americans, they said, Everton 
we kind of like, it sounds corny, but we believe in, the, in Everton. We actually think that there's a market there that's currently untapped in the mainstream media. So we're backing it. Like we're going to put extra resource into Everton because we think as, as a club and as, some, as a channel for you can write content about and a brand, there's loads of room for growth. And after like seeing Everton coverage in other parts of the media suffer exponentially in a ratio to Liverpool, to United, I thought, do you know what, I'm having a bit of that. You're willing to put your money where your mouth is and employ two people full-time to write about Everton. So that's a good sign. Um, and it's true to the word. They've, you know, they, they did it. And um, I think that they, they were right because we, we are, we notice all the time getting subscribers in, in North America. And for me, that professionally, that can only be a good thing. And then as a blue, that can only be a good thing because I think we're growing the club in a massive and important market as well, aren't we? Massively. I think, I think they were bang on as well. I think Everton are becoming more and more newsworthy, you know, almost a sleeping giant, you know, since Mashiri's come in, you know, yes, it's not gone as quick as we'd hoped, but we're, we're certainly moving in the right direction. We've got one of the world's most famous managers, one of the world's best managers, in my opinion. Exactly. Obviously, the signing, signing of Hamas Rodriguez, you know, look at, look at, look at the uh, ripples that cause around, around the world, you know, look, look at the fan base we're now getting in, in South America and, you know, if you look at Everton again now in five years, hopefully when this new stadium's built, I think that'll prove you know that, that they were right. They were right to take a take a punt on bringing two people in. Yeah, I hope so, mate. Greg, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. And what, what a what a, a, a comment to finish on as well in regards to you know the how how the company you work for it are back in our club, and it's it's great to hear that you know the club is is well thought of and. Uh, well, I'll say keep on doing doing what you do, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to speak to yourself today. Really enjoyed it, lads. Nice one. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Thanks everyone for, for, for listening. Uh, we will be back at some point over the next couple of months or so with a new uh, B-side, but we'll be back, as we said on the podcast uh, at the weekend, we'll be back after the Crystal Palace game and have a little look, hopefully, at uh, Everton getting back on, the, on a winning run. So we'll catch you then. The Unholy Trinity Podcast. The Trinity B-Side. Tackling the issues within football. Sports Social Podcast Network.